subject, rock and roll. Can I get an amen? amen? Rock and roll has just about brought about the disintegration of our civilization. Some of the most difficult things to discern in this life can be boundaries. There are many, obviously, that we as healthy people should maintain for our own protection, but don't. But there are others that function more like imaginary prison bars, holding us back, keeping us from pursuing our dreams, creating our sounds, and loving our neighbors as well as we should. Sussing out the difference between the boundaries that help us and the ones that unnecessarily hold us back. Well, that's one of the most important skills any of us can master in this life. It might also be something that music can help us with, if we let it. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes podcast, we're going to hear from an artist who has been testing those boundaries, pushing against them, as one who found himself contained by, well, success. Whether you've heard of the band that made him internationally famous with Christian pop fans or not, or frankly, whether you're even remotely interested in that genre, our guest today has a story that is fascinating on a purely cultural and maybe even anthropological level. Kevin Max Smith is an edgy, button-pushing rock artist from the Midwest who, though he grew up in a Christian home and had developed a faith perspective of his own, through a strange set of circumstances found himself as one-third of a pop rap band that sold millions of albums, filled stadiums full of fans, and came to define a genre, and really an era, that he never really signed up for. It was all sort of an accident, a happy one for the most part, but certainly not anything he had expected or prepared for. DC Talk was the epitome of Christian rock in the 90s. Their blend of rap, rock, and pop was just edgy enough to thrill youth groups, but safe enough to make parents and church leaders, if not comfortable, at least less inclined to set their hair on fire over the so-called evil nature of rock and rap. Their music, especially their first few records, were carefully crafted to reference the alternative hits of the day in a safe-for-the-church-bus kind of way, and boy did it work. Later, that group propelled Toby Mac to the pole position in the CCM genre as a solo artist, where he still remains, setting the standard as what might be the best example of contemporary Christian music happening today, while Michael Tate eventually became the lead singer for a rebooted version of the Newsboys. But Kevin Max, the brooding, experimental singer of the group, had artsier inclinations all along. 
Since DC Talk went on hiatus over 20 years ago, Max has released almost 20 projects covering a wide range of styles, mostly as an indie artist, and he is about to turn the page yet again. Today on the True Tunes Podcast, we have an extended conversation with this 30-year-plus veteran artist and songwriter who has experienced everything from private jets to opening slots at LA clubs, kind of in reverse order. And now, as he steps away from his solo career to start a new band called Sad Astronauts, we'll be getting an early listen to one of those tracks, too. On the jukebox, we'll take a listen to one of the most important albums, dare I say one of the pillars of the tent under which we gather here today, Mark Hurd's 1990 accidental masterpiece, Dry Bones Dance, another example of an artist working hard to break through boundaries and limitations. You heard Buddy Miller mention this album a few episodes ago, and we are super excited to hear that our friends at Low Fidelity Records are now planning, with the full support of Mark's family and his longtime manager and friend Dan Russell, to reissue this near-perfect album in a gloriously remastered format on vinyl and CD, with lots of extras, including liner notes by Buddy. So, we will take a special listen to Dry Bones Dance just in time for you to consider getting in on this limited edition reissue if you haven't already. First, our conversation with Kevin Max. Though we both live in Nashville, once again, due to COVID safety concerns, we decided to conduct this interview online. He from his studio down in Franklin and me from mine in East Nashville. First, I just want to say, man, thank you for taking time to hang out here in the podcast with us. And Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Tell me about your background and like what led up your, your childhood, your high school years, your musical roots and kind of like what was the soup that you crawled out of musically that that led you to to college and then to to get involved in all this in the first place 
Well, I mean, being from Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, I wouldn't call that the, a musical mecca uh, of any kind. Um, but we did have some pretty decent rock stations growing up. I listened to a lot of WGRD and WLAV. And so it was ma mainly classic rock um, that, that, that played on rock stations. But I liked new wave music. And it was really hard to hear new wave music on the radio in Grand Rapids. Um, there were only a few DJs that were playing that stuff. And I remember going to a record store early on in high school and buying Echo and the Bunnymen, Ocean Rain, uh, because it was nice. in a movie soundtrack, right? And I thought, this I love this band, you know? And then I, I got introduced to the Smiths from a friend of mine that lived down the street. And I think my first record was Meat is Murder, and that kind of changed everything for me. I loved... You know, I just loved English New Wave from the very beginning. And that kind of made me go back in and investigate my parents' records, like the Beatles and Elvis. And, and uh, you know, my dad actually kind of liked country music a bit. So he had Willie Nelson and things like that. So I was informed uh, through a lot of musical tastes from friends and whatnot. But I centered in on British rock and New Wave very early and I think a lot, of, a lot of people know the story. I was mowing my lawn, uh, my, my parents' lawn on, on one of those old lawn mowers, you know, that were massive and ugly. And I had a, I had a cassette tape with headphones on and, and I was listening to Queen the Game. And nice. um, that album was the one that made me just go, okay, that's what I want to do. Right. I, I want Freddie Mercury's job, you know? Um, and it's, you know, it still stuck with me that record. I mean, it just kind of opened up the door for all of these really interesting looks at, you know, how rock and roll could be pushed beyond the norm, you know? And um, yeah, so that kind of got me interested in music and I had been singing very early on at, very, at a very early age. People had, you know, said that I had a unique voice and gave me the confidence to get up on stage and do what I did. And I grew up in a Christian home, so my, my parents, really wanted me to go to a Christian school and kind of talked me into Liberty University. And I didn't know anything about Liberty. I went there for one year and was kicked out. Um, and then I, I, you know, the Dean of Men, his name was Dane Emmerich, Dane, Dean Dane, nice. real, <laughs> real name. Uh, he liked he, I guess he saw some kind of potential in me. So he said, you know, if you get your act together and you have your your pastor and your parents write a letter, um, we'll let you come back the next semester. You know, because your infraction was an heinous infraction. So we're going to let you back in. And uh, I um, really didn't want to go back. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I did not fit even th back that far with evangelical uh, conservatives. I just, I've never have. Um, and, but I went back in that year, I met Toby and Mike and it just kind of changed everything. And they came to me and asked me, you know, would you be in this group we've started called DC Talk? And they played me this, this tape and it was like heaven bound. And I'm like, you know, I wanted to be in a rock band. I just, you know, the, the thought of being in a rap group was so foreign to me. I was just like, there's just no way, but I liked the guys. I thought they were cool and they were they were really really kind to me. I was I was a misfit. Uh, I looked like 
a kid that wanted to be Corey Hart or something in college and my hair was spiked and I wore like all sorts of uh, rubber bracelets and things and um, you know and and they just probably took took um, pity on me and they're like you know that guy's got a great voice we've heard him singing around school let's let's work with this guy you know and uh, I gave in and I said yeah I caved and I was like okay I'll, I'll do it. I'll sing with a rap band, you know? And before we knew it, people, whenever we performed, people loved it. And so I found myself in this really strange roller coaster of a ride that not even within a year, we were signed to Forefront and leaving college and moving to Nashville, Tennessee. But you accept me every time and again. Yes, you accept me. You never mention just how That's interesting because college is one of those places where you are feeling that stuff out and experimenting and especially musicians usually I mean a lot of us in those years we're in multiple bands and we're we're doing two three things at once so it wouldn't be the weirdest thing for a, for somebody to experiment and sing in a rap group and sing in a punk band and sing in a whatever like that's yeah. not the strangest thing for somebody to do in college what's i guess not in the late 80s early 90s but yeah right but i'm but, but what is weird and, and one in a million is that that thing happens to just explode the way it did but and then you it end was, up it was a, it was on a trajectory from the very beginning of a certain amount of success because number one we worked really hard on a, a live show it was all about entertainment to toby yeah. like he had this you know three ring circus thing down before a lot of people did and we were just kind of blowing the competition off stage yeah. with the show. Right. Um, it wasn't until I would say like late free at last Jesus freak where the music started really becoming appealing to me. Right. Um, Jesus freak. We all wrote on the record supernatural. All three of us wrote every song together. So supernatural to me, strangely enough, last record was the most cohesive form of DC talk in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the purest DC Talk fans will say, no, 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 it was the early records because they loved hip hop more than anything else. And, you know, or at least they liked the white church evangelical version of hip hop. Yeah, it was nostalgia. They grew right. up in that with their youth groups, you know. Exactly. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I I quickly went my own way um, in the early 2000s, as most people right. know, and just kind of walked away from Christian music really and tried to do my own thing and and uh, it was a very great a learning experience especially moving to Los Angeles playing you know uh, Sunset Strip playing the residency at the Viper Room and I mean I was just tested by fire like you know how good am I really you know right. and uh, just fell in with a really bunch of great creative people you know Andy Prickett from the Prayer Chain um Dickie Swift was my 
my keyboard player, Richard Swift, Eli Thompson, Frank Lenz, you know, all those guys just kind of became my friend and helped me make a couple records while I was out there. And it was an amazing time. But I found out really quickly the difference between traveling by jet and tour bus (laughs) to traveling in your own car to gigs, you know, and playing in front of 200 people as opposed to 20,000, you know, very different. I remember um, the first solo gig I saw you do was at Cornerstone, the day on the main stage when we booked you and Tate and Toby to all play separate shows. And everybody, of course, is assuming, you know, that you'll all come together and do a DC Talk thing, which you didn't do. But I remember you coming out wearing a a cape and a crown and you were in character you were in full-blown you you weren't even backstage you were barely even you were almost like in a role you weren't normal kevin you were regal and and it was a performance role thing that you took on and then you went out on stage and it took people of a little bit to go what this is cornerstone this is like yeah the most dirty grungy low brow version and then after a little bit though you won that crowd over. Everybody was pretty impressed with this theater that you were bringing to the to the stage. Well, Tell we, me we, about the cape and the the persona you were trying because it seemed like what you were doing was this is new, this is different, this is something. To be else. T- completely honest with you, I I really don't remember my motivations <laughs> on that. It was an impulse. The motivations <laughs> were just pure like shock rock, shock you know, like having fun. It was it was you know, I'm going to come out wearing angel wings you know because i because it was in my video and i was i was having fun with that i mean you know if you watch that i actually watched that performance just recently because a fan sent it to me and then i posted it on on youtube because i had, i hadn't seen it for years you know i mean pretty quickly the the cape and the wings came off and you know i was just kind of you know performing in my regular you know stuff which was arm which was a which was a, a vintage army jacket that I got from a thrift store that I had uh, a guy in Nashville put rhinestones on. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we played rock and roll. And so, you know, we we wanted to embody rock and roll. And rock and roll, t- in my brain, was Freddie Mercury, David Bowie, right. you know, T-Rex. Um, it, it, it wasn't um, dirty, grungy, uh, you know kind of bands at that point i was i was i was embracing the glam rock and stereotype b is definitely an amalgamation of so many different 
types of music, you know. Right. And Adrian Ballou had been producing that, and he was a David Bowie guy, and we talked quite a bit about my David Bowie fascination. And uh, he let me kind of ride that on the record and just kind of do my thing. And so I think everybody, in Forefront included, were just like, what is this kid up to? Like, what is he doing you know and they had everybody was just like oh my you know and i wore a feather boa in the feather in the photo shoot it's kind of a joke it's like an inside joke to to my friends um this is what a rock star should look like you know and uh, i was doing it tongue in cheek but all these people thought it was i was serious about the feather boa you know what i mean <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, so I quickly went just to jeans and t-shirt and, and uh, you know, leather jackets when I moved to L.A. So. All I know we're fading Like a soul lost in the wilderness We're cold and we're cut off from it Not knowing where it's gonna end a star in Bethlehem is calling you. It's a memory of one who made it deep yourself. There's no one who does it quite like you. Did you experience a little bit of the difference between? fans who were looking for music as an artistic experience versus people that were looking at Christian music as a product that reinforced uh, a worldview and a lifestyle and an alternative kind of parallel universe that had been created and was really becoming quite big business in the 90s. Um, you were kind of migrating out of one, out of that thing, into this world of just great art that happened to have this spiritual perspective to it, but that would work on an artistic level. And that seems to me like your solo career from the beginning was more migrating towards that and away from Absolutely. the idea of creating quote unquote Christian music. It was. I mean, my first solo thing actually strangely enough was singing on a mark heard tribute record that's right you know and um i was always drawn to the alternative versions of music period so it had no difference from christian music to general market to whatever i was always into the alternative uh forms of music and somebody introduced mark heard to me and i was like i can't believe this guy is actually in this genre he he eclipses all of that and especially his lyrics, you know. And so I think it was Dan Russell that asked me to do that. And he goes, which song would you want to pick of Mark's? And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, so we ended up doing Lonely Moon. And Dave Perkins was the one that played guitar for me on that. And Lynn Nichols was, was on it. And I think uh, Wade James was so playing. So you got Chicago Guevara, basically. I basically had Chicago Guevara <laughs> with my drum, with my um a friend Todd Collins who programmed a bunch of stuff for DC oh, yeah. Talk to do a program for that for right. the drum loop so right. early on I was that's that's who I was into it's strange I'm still there yeah. but after all these years people still equate me only with DC Talk a lot of people only equate me with DC Talk and it's not until they look into my solo music that they go oh my gosh this guy's like 
an alternative head or an in, right. independent, you know, uh, I would just consider my music indie, you know, yeah. and um, I'm not punk. I'm not hard rock. I'm not pop. I'm not CCM. So I, it's just kind of like I've never been able to be cornered, I guess. And that's one thing that is probably a downfall to a little bit when it comes to the business right. of pushing myself is like I've never said this is my style, you know. And um, But yeah, early on, man, I was all about anybody that was pushing the alternative buttons and Charlie Peacock uh, trio, um, you know, we toured with them and I quickly became friends with Jimmy Abeg and we did a poetry book together in 1994 right, yeah, right? right in the middle of very poppy DC talk I do this poetry book with Jimmy Abeg and everybody's like what are you doing you know and the guys didn't like the fact that I had this poetry book in the middle of the merch table when they're signing you know t-shirts and CDs and here I am with this arty poetry book um, and Jimmy and I did a few actual uh performances around that i've always been that in that group although i'm not so i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm even though i love that group of fringe christian rock alternative guys i still have not been accepted because i was in dc talk so oh i don't know about it's that. okay i just think that there's not really much of a group there's no <laughs> secret handshake well i've waiting. moved <laughs> like... i've moved on from the whole industry now so it doesn't matter anymore i'm 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 gone there's a child in Right now, I just continue to, you know, follow the muse, as they say. And, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of Kevin Max as a solo artist. And so, you know, and I feel like I've done pretty much anything I wanted to do. I've done it. I've done 18 records. Being in a rock band seems the most interesting equation to me right now. Yeah. Just being the dumb blonde singer for once. You know? <laughs> So who are you saying goodbye to when you say you're this is your swan song to the myself? You're saying goodbye. <laughs> I'm saying goodbye to myself. I'm saying, you know, you, you've tried really good, son, for so many, many years. And, and I'm proud of everything that I've created. So I just I feel like I'm taking a break from myself, the industry uh -huh. of self, the industry of constantly putting out things to, you know, appeal to a certain group of people i'm just kind of i'm ready to move on and do something a little different that's not to say i won't come back to it i have tried to make music uh even sometimes for the christian industry in the past a couple songs here and there it, it's just never worked out for me mm -hmm. so yes i've been very happy in that alternative indie section where you know i'm making music for the crowd that listens to me and a lot of the last four years of my life have been crowdfund situations, which have been very successful and fun for me to do because I'm making music specifically tailor-made for the people that listen to me and they, they know what I do 
and they push me actually the, the, the weirder the better for them you know right. and I feel like I'm I've been blessed because I've got that crowd that really is invested in what I do it's just for me right now I need to take a break from it because it's not just and this is when I want to talk about the industry uh, dr- draw this this form for you in a way it's also self-management hmm. it's also self-marketing it's you know and I hate marketing myself I hate managing myself I'm absolutely horrible at managing myself uh, my wife tries to do it and and she she gives up you know because I'm just all over the place in fact somebody at one point said oh Kevin Max he's he's unmanageable you know it kind of rhymes with an incorrigible <laughs> right, they, go, they go hand in hand right um and so you know there's just a lot of weight as a solo artist to carry always selling yourself online selling yourself on your websites constantly checking in with everybody do you like me and I, i'm just I'm, I'm tired of it right. and uh i think every artist goes through that you know i've been doing this since 2001 i mean and so i'm fulfilled i feel i feel comfortable with it now my wife would not be comfortable with me giving up you know and and probably trying to find a a different kind of a job um because that's the fear of the unknown so we continue to make music because that's what i do best some say he was an outlaw that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen no one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done but i guess it must have been something bad that kept him on the run tell me about the uh revisiting this planet record um how did it come together and how do you feel about it now that that it's out there and it's done and people are reacting to it i'm extremely happy about it when i first started doing it i had major anxiety you know it's like messing with a a near perfect record there were a lot of deep reasons for me doing it number one i was friends with larry i loved who he was as a person a lot of people knew larry norman as the musician or the pioneer or you know whatever the i knew him as a guy that would come into town and take me to tower records and and you know buy me strange obscure blues records and want me to listen to it and i became his friend and i just looked up to him as a friend and um when he passed away i had this deep regret of not keeping in touch with him and i just had this thing in my back of my mind what could i do that would honor larry and i just thought well i think a new generation of people need to hear some of this these songs you know and but i kept pushing it off because it seemed too it just seemed too difficult of a project and it felt like the kind of thing where i would get a lot of crap from it uh you know with, with a lot of people especially the purest larry norman fans you know what the you know why is this dude covering he has no right covering larry norman stuff blah 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 i met his son mike at a show in portland oregon and um we hung out backstage afterwards and talking to mike and his wife tiffany and I, I just had such a great time connecting with Mike Norman. I gave him this thought. I was like, you know, I've always wanted to redo Only Visiting This Planet. You know, it was the one record that I kind of related to early on. And uh, more importantly than the record, 
and the music that followed with Larry Norman, I related to the man Larry Norman. I related to him so deeply. Um, I felt like he was like the John Lennon of Christian music. I don't think anybody, you know, came close to him. And so, you know, after talking to Mike Norman about this, you know, he's like, you need to do it, you know, because I think my dad would love that you wanted to honor him that way. So we finally, you know, got the nerve or the balls to go ahead and finish it, you know. And um, I got John Painter to to produce it with me because he's um, probably the best musician in, in Nashville. Wow. I'm going to hurt feelings when I say that. But, I, I, you know, as a multi-instrumentalist, yeah. he's just amazing and he's worked with me for a few records and, and and i knew that john could make this sonically correct and he did you know it still sounds retro it's still it still has some you know touches from the 1970s but it's still kind of we put our own spin on it so i'm extremely happy M- mainly because of 2020 right now i feel like these songs um are all you know it's crazy they need to hear them all over again i look at it as a unifying record not a divi- dividing record i look at it as yeah. unification these songs are about going against the man and and, and loving and loving people right. and knowing that jesus reached out to the misfit and the poor and he, he, you know mm-hmm. and he wasn't about you know the uh religious corporation In a land that once was free In a land that poured its love out on the moon And I grew up in the shadows Of your silos filled with grain But you never helped to fill my empty spoon And when I was ten, you murdered love with courtroom politics And you learned to make a lie sound just like truth But I know you better now, and I don't fall for all your tricks And you've lost the one advantage of my youth Earlier that year, uh, earlier this year, I did a record called Radio Technica. I did it and released it July 3rd. It was it was my protest album. I mean, there's several songs on there that really piss people off, but I, I felt like I needed to be able to say what I wanted to say. And the only way that I knew how to do it was almost kind of through poetry. Right. So I said, all right, I'm going to do a spoken word record. You know, and everybody's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, but look, look, I've did it before with Adrian Ballou in... in 2003 so this isn't the most mysterious thing i've ever done it's not and you've written poetry for and it's not the stupidest thing i've ever done and so we (laughs) (laughs) you set the bar pretty high we made a poetry record and to you know dance music and techno and uh so it was an interesting bookend of a year project wise from radio technica to larry norman's revisiting this planet i mean it's literally opposite sides of the bookshelf but at the same time two albums i absolutely 100 percent agree with and believe in except for i wish we'd all been ready which (laughs) gave me pause even from the very beginning i've sung that song so many times and i just never felt the hope in that song and i just didn't feel that that song needed to be around in 2020 (laughs) Uh, 
Maybe it does. Maybe it is the song everybody needs to hear. The Jesus movement came out of a time of total cultural upheaval. Uh, it was, a, it was the, the world was a dumpster fire the same, in a lot of the same ways that it is now. People lost their faith in institutions. Young people felt completely disempowered, uh, disenfranchised. Uh, with all of that grinding and pain and, and Vietnam and all that stuff, a, a group of people go looking for this rootsy, folksy, long-haired, radical counterculture Jesus. And that's where the Jesus movement, that's yep. the soil that that comes out of. So when you look at that record as a product of that, not as a product of the evangelical industrial complex, you know, not, not something that could be manufactured to meet the market's demands, it really is pretty amazing. I mean, I, he was obviously at odds too with, I wish we'd all been running himself. Talking to Mike about it, you know, he said, yeah, that was the one song my dad, you know, didn't enjoy playing that much. And, you know, we probably played it to oblivion on the road with DC Talk. And at that point, I never really even invested in what post-trib, pre-trib was all about. I, I was singing it as just this crazy song of p potential uh, strangeness and uh right um so now i just I, I i removed it from the canon if if you will because i felt like it just it had already been spoken many times yeah. it's 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 in it's on the vinyl though so people uh -huh. purists of i wish we'd all been ready can hear it on the vinyl life was filled with guns and war and all of us got trampled on the floor I wish we'd all been ready The children died, the days grew cold A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold And I wish we'd all been ready There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind Don't go away! The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. find an album that sounds timelier 30 years after its release than it did when you first unwrapped it. But when Mark Hurd's Dry Bones Dance album debuted in 1990, Americana wasn't a genre yet, 
Alternative rock was leaning heavily into grunge and industrial sounds, and Christian music was shinier and slicker than ever. Heard's previous album had been 1987's Ideola, a very different and very cool amped up project that he had called a band project, wherein he had just happened to be the only member of the band. But after years of having his songs covered by artists like Phil Keggy and Randy Stonehill and paying the bills as a producer and engineer, Heard emerged with a collection of songs that he had recorded very casually with friends in his home studio. It had no known market and was released on his own fingerprint label independently with very limited distribution. And the day it showed up, many of us stopped what we were doing and put it on and listened over and over. Today, fans of Jason Isbell, Justin Towns Earl, Old 97s, Alejandro Escovedo, Chuck Prophet, Sunvolt, or even The Chicks or The Highwaymen should be listening to this album and discovering it all over again. In 1990, it seemed that Mark Hurd had been around forever. After some underground work, he had made his debut with Appalachian Melody on Larry Norman's Solid Rock label in 1979, which was just 11 years earlier. He signed with the CCM label Home Sweet Home shortly thereafter and released five albums there. Although he would often talk about his frustration with the label and the entire industry, really, those are some excellent albums. Throw in that Ideola album in 1987, and you can see a 10-year crucible of growth that produced a writer and a singer of unusual depth and skill. Drybones Dance, as much as it does represent the beginning of a new chapter for Heard, is also the culmination of years spent working out his ideas, wrestling with his influences, and dancing with his frustration. Here, in his late 30s, we encounter a well-read, good-humored, deep-hearted artist who is not afraid of country, rockabilly, folk, or even gospel influences. He has no one to answer to but himself, and the results are astonishing. The album opened with the Cajun-influenced shuffle of Rise from the Ruins, a romp of a tune that embodies the clear-eyed awareness of the broken human condition as it delivers an unabashed and even prophetic message of encouragement. Death will not have the final say here.
same energy flows right into the next song, the title track, as it turns Ezekiel's vision into a cause for great hope. The balance between sober-eyed acknowledgement of pain and loss and a dogged faith in something brighter and truer coming over the horizon is what gives Dry Bones Dance its transcendent power. As a songwriter, Heard could zero in on emotional and spiritual details like a great filmmaker. His faith was weathered, maybe weary, but it was faith nonetheless. His dreams may have been broken, but they were being restored. The spark was there, being tended. Heard was also a remarkably funny songwriter. He is right up there with Elvis Costello when it comes to his ability to use self-deprecation and satire to make serious points. was also compositionally brilliant. He could combine elements of the Beatles, the Everly Brothers, Los Lobos, and Hank Williams in one song and then lay a lyric over it that would make T-Bone Burnett jealous. It's no wonder Bruce Coburn called him his favorite songwriter. Each song on Dry Bones Dance is a masterclass in songwriting, especially for anyone interested in grappling with the deepest questions of life. The assistance of friends, including Michael Bean of The Call, Sam Phillips, Jerry Chamberlain, Pamela Miner, Sharon McCall, and Fergus Marsh, fleshed out the sound considerably. As much as this was a homegrown affair, those years of producing and engineering other people's records had built a skill set that allowed Heard to capture some incredible sounds on these casual recordings. Thinking about Dry Bones Dance, I wanted to connect with a couple of people who worked with Mark on the record to give us some inside perspective on it. I thought of two people, actually with very different views of Mark. Kate Miner, who went by Pamela back then, had been a fan of Mark for years, and he had produced some of her work. Kate was actually singing with Mark at Cornerstone 92 the night that he had his heart attack. Fergus Marsh, on the other hand, was Bruce Coburn's right-hand man back then, a master of the Chapman stick, and really not aware of Mark at all. He played on Dry Bones Dance. I caught up with both of them to see what they could tell us about Mark and Dry Bones Dance back in 1990. First, Fergus Marsh from his home studio in Toronto. How did Mark come onto your radar and how did you end up participating on this record and, and playing with him in the first place? Our introduction came via Dan Russell. I'd met Dan previously. I'd known him for a couple of years, I guess. I think he had been a promoter on one of the Bruce shows in Boston. He just introduced himself. He actually called me Mr. Marsh. Very strange. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyways uh then we you know we you know had a more of a relationship after that and of course he was already well entrenched with mark and uh, he sent mark out to see us play uh and more specifically me i guess Dan put in his mind that maybe I'd be a good fit for for uh, Mark's music. So uh, when we played in Los Angeles, where Mark was living, he came out to see the show, and then we and we hooked up. And I can't remember if that was after the show, I guess. Just from there, he invited me to do, uh, do some recording with him in the Boston area with uh, Dan and Fingerprint Records. How did Mark strike you at that time when you heard his songs and him personally? What kind of uh, impact did he have? Okay, so I didn't hear anything previous to Dry Bones Dance. I would just heard the material, but my first impressions of him were he was a person that was very interested in people. So that I felt that interest from him and that uh, camaraderie, you know, he would look for points of contact. There was always that human element that he was interested in and not, you know, I generally had been in the position of being a, a, a session player, I guess. Uh, where I'm just a hired guy, and, and this is another situation where I'm a hired guy, but but there was a difference. It's just like there was, you knew there was an uh, an interest in the person as well as uh, whatever I brought musically, and uh, I greatly appreciated that. In the same way that uh, Mark was interested in me as a person, I always found his songs did the same thing. Mm. Uh, instead of being, you know, really just all about things on a spiritual plane it was always how it related to the human element you know or how the human related to those spiritual issues and uh i mean and he did it so poetically and artistically but always with that human touch that uh, is sometimes rare in a lot of songwriting these days so uh, you know i think that's when most uh, songwriters are at their best when they can people can relate to it on their level, you know, no matter what the subject matter is. And I think that's uh, something that Mark did really well. Kate Miner joined me via Zoom from her home outside of Dallas. Our Zoom connection wasn't the greatest, so I apologize for the dropouts, but I think there's some really important stuff here. Thanks for joining us today, Kate. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, how did you first come into Mark's orbit? When did you two initially connect? I probably met Mark at Word, and he was hired to record my first record um, that we did in Fort Worth. And that is how I met him. I guess he was the engineer. Okay. It was so that was about 257 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. What was it like to enter into his world? What kind of impression did he make on you? I, at that time, was just really enamored with the whole thing about Mark. He was just super, like the most intelligent person I had ever met. And I, I felt almost kind of bewildered in in the best way to be allowed to be in his presence. I couldn't believe the kind of people I, I was meeting and the music that he was making. And he gave me my lessons in kind of industry stuff and goofball A&R guys and, you know. When you listen back to Dry Bones Dance now, how does it strike you? And how did it strike you then? Where, where did this fit in your opinion? 
it was just sonically odd and perfect and ahead of everybody else. And what I really think about it now is, at great art is, it, it just sounds timeless. Forget about lyrically because, I mean, he'll never fit into this world. But sonically, just even the way it was recorded, the way the drums were recorded, the way the life and the bass, where the vocals are in the mix. I mean, it is just a, it's brilliant. It's completely timeless. It could be made right now. There's not a DX7 to be, to be heard on that thing. Kate was performing with Mark in his final performance the night that he suffered a heart attack on stage at the Cornerstone Festival. We'll talk more with her about that night when we do our full episode on Mark, but despite our bad Zoom connection, we did reminisce about that night and reflect on just what we all have missed out on since Mark left us nearly three decades ago. I am so happy that I knew him, and my I have such great memories of his backyard and yeah. all the fun people, uh, you know, Buddy and Julie. And, uh, so many Tom, Tom Willett and yeah, just all the great people. And here, thanks to Dan Russell, a few minutes of scratchy tape of an interview with Mark from around the time of the release of Dry Bones Dance. I found myself busy working on other people's things. I, uh, I had a child, or my wife did really, back a couple of years ago, and I've been busy trying to make a living and make ends meet. I hadn't really had a whole lot of time to think about what I was doing with my career, or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, I'd been writing a lot of music for other artists to cover, and I'd been working in the studio producing and engineering and hadn't had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do on the next record. And I, I almost feel like I haven't been able to do a project in the last five years of uh, where that really made sense after having done this for 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it is now, uh, and you still haven't gained a wide acceptance and you haven't sold enough records to really make a living and that sort of thing. You start getting a little bit discouraged and you, and you start thinking about your family and the things that are the most important. I listened to Otis Redding records and some of the old stuff out of the 50s and 60s, early 60s that were recorded, you know, live to mono that where people just, they came in and they played and they they got it pretty good, you know, and it, it felt pretty good and everybody played together. And, and, and so I think to get music back to that uh, sort of mentality where it's it's more of a visceral part of humanness is is good. And now, a few little examples of the many extras that will be included in the Dry Bones Dance reissue if it is successfully funded. Low Fidelity has given us a few clips to play here, including this, a rough version of Everything Is Alright, which would have possibly been used in a second Ideola project if that project had ever come about. Just what I can see
Here's another little tease, an alternate mix of Lonely Road that was dubbed the quote, more fiddle mix for obvious reasons. It turns out Mark made multiple mixes of all the songs, and while some of the variations were very subtle, some were more pronounced. This was the latter, and you can really hear that fiddle go to town in the solo section. Another really exciting aspect of any reissue like this, but especially this one, is when the overall album can be remastered in a meaningful and tasteful way. I won't get into the boring details, but mastering is a complicated auditory science, and many of the tools that are readily available today were either not invented in 1990 or were prohibitively expensive. In the right hands, mastering can really enhance the warmth of a recording without tampering with the sonic integrity of the original tone. Although this clip of the in-progress version of Strong Hand of Love is already sounding good, and it's not even finished yet, I'm confident that the album is going to sound wonderful by the time they're finished. Fidelity has an amazing track record when it comes to these projects, by the way. They've done stunning reissues for the 77s, Lost Dogs, Adam Again, and many others. We'll post the link on the show notes page for this episode. Thanks to them and to Dan Russell for giving us a sneak peek here, and thanks to Dan for those amazing Mark Hurd interview clips. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be right back after this. We're back 
with the True Tunes podcast. And now back to our conversation with Kevin. Now you added a song and I want to park here just for a minute because I really think this is interesting. Your song that you wrote to contribute to this, God Part 4. Tell me about your thinking and diving into this pool and how much all of those previous versions were speaking into that and what you uh, were trying to accomplish in taking on something that fraught. I look at John Lennon as kind of like, I really do look at him as kind of like a prophet. I mean, you know, and he he, um, he had a way of just writing the most simplistic idea, but making it sound so cosmic and universal. And so I had that wild idea in the middle of doing this. You know, I saw God part three in Stranded in Babylon and I'm like, huh, maybe I should answer that. You know what I mean? And I said, you know, this is my moment. If I want to let people know what I feel, how I feel about theology, how I feel about, you know, politics, how I feel about um, hot topics or whatever, this is the moment for me to do it because these, these, all of these God songs are about what you don't like. And there's a lot of things I don't like. (laughs) There's more things that I don't like than I do like, you know? So, well, that's not true. I like a lot of things, but, uh, so I had fun basically getting on my little soapbox and saying, these are the things I don't like. I am talking about, you know, a creator, you know, the universal God. And I'm, I'm, you know. When you do your version, you're able to kind of, even though you admire Larry and you've just spent this whole record earning the right to kind of lovingly poke at the fact that that industry or that market, that group of people are often more concerned about what they say they believe than about what they do. And so your your version kind of splits the difference. And it's definitely a lot of the stuff that you're pissed off about that's going on in the name of the church and in the name of stuff. You're saying, I don't want any part of that. But it's also revealing that that simplistic answer of I believe in God is also not going to cut it if we're not willing to actually do some introspection, which brings me all the way back to Lenin's version yep. of God is a concept by which we measure our pain you know that that if we're t- if we're so concerned with not feeling pain we medicate our pain away we're not going to be drawing close to god yep you know, it so. was a lovely it was a lovely trilogy i felt like i had to disrupt it <laughs> i think you i think for our world it's a really good reminder I, I that sonically too that um each song is so different yeah you know, now again larry was l- really kind of I don't want to say biting off of U2, but it was almost kind of like a parody uh, musically of U2. Yeah. Um, when when I wrote the song, I actually wrote it on my piano, and it sounds very different from what it came out on the record. I told John when I went to him and I said, you know, I want to make this a guitar song. I don't want to make it a, a keyboard song. I want it to be a guitar thing. My, <laughs> You'll laugh at this. My, uh, my thought about it was I want it to sound like Bauhaus. On guitars, <laughs> nice. Okay. So if you go listen to it, the beginning sounds a lot like Bella Lugosi's "Dead." Oh yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. Um, and I, we instructed the guitar player. Her name's Lindsay Miller. She's fantastic to kind of play like a, a Bauhaus guitar part, you know. Nice. And then it just kind of drifted into its own thing, which which was great. But um, yeah, I felt the need to do that. 
um, because I had the chance and I didn't want people to think, oh man, he's, he believes right in line theologically with what Larry was saying, because it is a, a record from 1972, you know, and Larry was on his own path, his own journey at the time that he wrote those things down. You know, Larry now would probably look back and go, man, I changed that, I changed that, I changed that, but um, didn't have the chance to really, you know, say those things. Um, and I was like, man, I don't want people to think that I, I agree with everything here. Right. But um, the biggest thing I take away from it, the big takeaway from me is my friendship with Mike Norman. We, we call each other just about every day, every wow. other day. What I what I appreciate about this is that Larry was a complicated person, and um, he was lots of different people. Yes, exactly. You know, As Dylan said, which quoting, "I contain multitudes." <laughs> you know, and that was one of my favorite new Dylan songs. Yeah. So the the fact that we can say somebody is worth having in our family tree and also that doesn't mean that we have to skip over the problem parts because we learn from that as well about how we want to behave and how we don't want to behave and we need to acknowledge when people were hurt and we need to say this this is not acceptable and this stuff should never happen and um, that also models for the next generation when things go wrong how you deal with that you don't hide and bury stuff and christians don't have to act like saints all the time and that they got everything figured out all the time so Another cool thing, let me just say this real quick, is, is uh, you know, I got to meet and hang out a few times with Alex McDougall, Alex McDougall from Daniel Amos, you know, and uh, he's another person that's like, you know, he was there in the thick of it with Larry. Yep. He saw the good and the bad, yep. but he's like, you know, I treasure the good stuff. I don't watch TV and or CNBC, I don't believe in Fox or MTV. I won't be going to your mega church Cause prosperity gospel doesn't work I don't believe in guns or building walls We're just visiting this planet after all I don't believe in fear or terrorists I don't believe in fascist nationalists And I work a lot with students, young artists, people that are just getting started. Now, they don't have all that baggage of industry. There's no industry to support them. They're completely in the Wild West on their own, Dodge City. What kind of guidance do you have from your from your vista looking out at young artists who are trying to find enough people to pay attention to what they're doing that they could maybe stitch together some kind of a, a living doing this? What What advice do you have? I always tell people just, you know, um, number one, the, the big thing is is to, you know, really find out what you love, really find out what you like about music, because it's, it's, it's harder, in my opinion, to create when you're, you're not really sure about who you are. And I feel like it takes a while to get there. It's a journey. So I also tell people you're not going to nail it on the first try and it's going to take a few, you know, it's going to take a few projects probably until you really know what you want to do. I mean, there, there are those 
innately um, talented people that can just kind of set up to a desk or a piano or a guitar and just create you know a, a monumental piece of art right right off the bat but it's it's extremely rare so you know I'm all about you know writing as much as you possibly can you know I, I hate to say quantity helps but you know my first solo album I went and wrote like 30 40 songs you know and we only used 12 but um you know out of those 40 tunes i had a lot better of a, of a chance at creating something that had some sustainability and then of course the be yourself thing is a big deal i wrote a song about that one time because I, I i really believe in the power of individuality and independence you know it's like you really have to be not worried about what anybody else thinks and and trying to be the shadow of someone else but you know really embracing who you are yeah. is important it's the call of the wild in you the surrender in my signs it's a deadly situation the girl with the tiger eyes yeah it's the call of the wild in me through all these desperate heights it's a guilty combination the girl with the tiger eyes what do you think is the role of artists when it comes to finding inspiration in other artists' work, but yet somehow still inter- injecting your own identity into that? You you are immediately drawn to others' work because you it's a it's a huge passion, you know, and it's when you hear somebody else doing it and they're and they're 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 taking it into their own. Um, you know language and they're paraphrasing it their own way and creating something completely um different than what you would out of of the same subject it's just really interesting um to study it and to to you know i i i spend a lot of time on youtube and other engines watching other bands you know with new music you know i just watched the strokes the other night and i'm always like interested in how people come up with subject material material that you've heard about before over and over and over again but in new and innovative ways i think this the songs are infinite you know and you know there's um i love a uh, i forgot who, who said it but somebody was asked you know what's the best song you've ever written and this was a huge you know musical you know maverick hero said i haven't written it yet you know and it's kind of like that's how i feel yeah. i haven't written my best work yet because uh, it's constantly evolving i think that to me is the true magic is the constant struggle of wanting to do more and more and more and find out more and more and more and it's it's insatiable yeah. you know this feeling of you just always want to create something new um that's a really strong feeling and it, it can be overpowering um but i like giving into it you know yeah. and just letting it take a hold of me and man um some of the best stuff i've ever written is when i'm i'm wrestling with myself like I, you can't write that that can't, you can't write something that that simple you know or you can't write something that complex you know and then you and, and, and then because you because you're fighting with yourself you're you, you know you actually do create something interesting. Um, I love the struggle. 
when you listen when you went through this whole thing with uh, Jesus Freak 25 years later and you just had to sign a bunch of records and you did you go back and listen to it how does that record strike you what does that whole experience strike you at 25 years down the road man I look at it from a very dusty lens <laughs> I'm looking at it like literally through a very um you know very pointed lens as well i we worked so much during that time frame that i have a hard time remembering the initial scenarios and the plateaus and um because it was so much work i mean we played so many shows and we were everywhere but the one constant thing I come back to is just this um, feeling of community in a way that was really beautiful every night when we would do the acoustic set and we'd set on the, um, you know, it was the living room furniture on the, on, the, uh, on the satellite stage. There was just this beautiful, almost grandiose feeling of the spirit every night. And I'm not a Pentecostal type person at all, but I just felt this not every night but a lot of nights it just felt like kind of god walk walking through the room a little bit you know and the beauty of it was the thing that we shared with all these people that were there and they shared with us as a community listening to these songs over and over again and it was just to me that's the that's the plateau reward of music is getting to see people enjoy it to the point where it's actually and i hate to say this because please take this and i'm saying it with a grain of salt that it actually changes people it was such a beautiful feeling and i'm felt so honored by it to be be a part of it now of course i look back and you know a lot of people that are, are, are haters will go oh man that's the music that they made me listen to in youth group and blah 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 but i i like to think that most of the people that came to our shows were there because they wanted to. Again, it was just like the people singing these songs back to you and how it kind of changed their outlook and how they would tell you their personal stories every night about how a song, you know, basically empowered them to do something or, you know, made them reach out to someone that they wouldn't have normally uh, reached out to and, and, um, Music is the universal language that I, I, I think it goes further than most other uh, forms. I'm always blown away that, you know, whenever it's the top 100 charts, I mean, of Christian rock albums or Christian songs or whatever, you know, Jesus Freak is usually number one. And I'm kind of like, that always mystifies me. And, I, and I'm like, I also think, you know, I, I can't still even wrestle with the idea of how big it got. Because I have people coming up to me all the time, you know, just saying that record, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, wow, you know, and I'm a lucky guy. I got a wonderful, wonder, uh, I have the most amazing family. I have the most amazing wife, four beautiful kids. Um, I'm pretty, pretty mellowed out at 53. But, uh, you know, I still have a little bit of a flame inside me to create something you know memorable like that and you know when you when you look back and you look at your 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 book of work and you go oh i did that you know it's um it's a challenge to yourself welcome to our living room you can 
take a seat, it's always free. Is this one for the people? Is this one for the Lord? Or do I simply serenade for things I must afford? You can jumble them together, my conflict still remains. Holiness is calling in the midst of courting fame. Cause I see the trust in their eyes. Though the sky is falling, they need your love in their life. Compromise is calling. So what if I stumble? What if I fall? Yeah, what if I lose my step and I make fools of song? Will the love continue? When my walk becomes a crawl It will have I stumbled So tell me about uh, Lonely Astronaut. So you've mentioned you're you're in this band, it's a partnership. You doing- I like Lonely Astronauts better than Sad Astronauts. Oh, I'm sorry, Sad Astronaut. You did you did that just to kinda like you know. Uh, belittle my band already. So I'm gonna start over again. Bruce, edit that out. So um, <laughs> So tell me about tell me about Sad Astronauts. Like what what uh, how did the idea start and where are you at in the process? I don't want to know. <laughs> and you, uh, I broke Kevin. Sad Astronauts. Uh, it's literally just you know us wanting to make the coolest rock record we can. And uh, I've been working with Eric Cole since 2000. Um, he wrote with me on Stereotype B quite a bit. He's written with me throughout the years, and he's been in my live band throughout the years, too. So uh, we have a very uh, great working relationship, um, and we're also really close friends. He's my buddy. So this is like going home to me, as just finding some, some peace and sanity with another dude that can make rock and roll, and I don't have to worry about always answering just to myself. Mm-hmm. I can I can bounce stuff stuff off another person, and, and you know he, he you know he can tell me you know that's that's crap or that's or this is a good idea, and we work really well really quickly together. Um, we've already written fifteen songs, sixteen songs, something like that. Musically, it's very, it's a little bit all over the place, but it's it's. Um, I like to tell people like immediately it, it felt more kind of shoegaze indie rock than it did you know crunchy rock or uh pop or anything like that so it's definitely alternative um but uh, i do think that we have written some great melodic stuff and lyrically um i'm writing all these lyrics and i'm having fun and a lot of them are about what i went through this year in 2020 in fact there's a song called it's okay that's talking about my deconstruction you know and so it's uh Lots of people are going through stuff, man. And we artists are privileged to be able to uh, put our thoughts and where we're going in our journey into songs that hopefully will stick around a lot longer than we do. Man, music has is, is never been um, more interesting to me, but it's like, I like where it's at, where um, the internet has leveled the playing field, so to speak. And, you know, you got to have a billion plays on Spotify to make music. Um, that's fine. That's okay. It just makes me want to create something of substance and not have to worry about, you know, the 
the tool or the catalyst or what's out there, you know, projecting it. I'm, I'm more interested in actually writing it than anything else. I'm actually more interested in creating music than I am performing it live. I do like performing live, but it's not my, I, I'm not in a fever over it. But the collaborating is also something I'm glad to hear you're doing it with somebody else. Cause that's, that's yeah. something that's, I can't make a record completely my, myself. I mean, I'm not Prince, but I mean, I, you know, I tend to bring in other people to produce and, you know, John Painter is like a one-stop shop, play everything kind of guy. So I'm very lucky to have him as a friend and as a music collaborator. Last quote I'll leave you with, Bowie says, uh, aging is an extraordinary process where you become the person you always should have been. That's one of my favorite quotes of his. You know, I think about Salvador Dali when I, when I, when I hear that, you know, because um, if you, it, I, I love painters and I, and I'm starting to paint again myself and I'm starting to really, really discovering a lot of stuff by looking around and, Dali was just, you know, he just always progressed and got more and more interesting as, as, as time went on. And, you know, the image that you have in your mind of Dali is of an older man, you know. And I think most of the men and women that I look up to are elderly people that have done a lot and lived a lot of life and gone through experience. And again, William Blake is one of my... Yeah. huge you know uh inspirations as an artist and uh, the songs of innocence and experience you know it's all about learning through time you know and time chipping and chiseling away at you until you yeah you become a lot more interesting the older you get in my opinion young artists coming out there are are often so worried about being real and being connected to who they really are they're projecting images and they're they're putting on masks and they're, they're, they're so much artifice and fakery uh, because, they've, because they're making a product that's got to sell and, as opposed to triggering yeah. an experience. Yeah. I, I definitely think at 53, I'm more interesting to, to, uh, to, to a degree because of what I've learned through hardship, uh, through through struggle i think that you know the 20 something or 30 something kevin max i mean you know definitely undeniably better looking back then but um just not as interesting 
and uh, you know, I just feel like we do we do age, and age is not a thing to be afraid of, but it's a thing to embrace. I love the fact that I have uh, put on weight, and I I I don't look as good anymore if I shave my beard. I, I like having a beard; it just it feels natural to me. So I'm all about embracing my my uh, older self. I want to thank Kevin for taking so much time with us today and for being so open and transparent. We certainly wish him all the best with the new Sad Astronauts project and we'll keep you all updated on our True Tunes Facebook page. As I climb up on my soapbox today, I'm still thinking about this idea of boundaries, real and imagined, and how learning to listen better might be the key to our freedom. Both Kevin and Mark Hurd, like so many others, seem to have found themselves boxed into territories they didn't expect. The Christian music world functioned like many other genres in this way. Jazz purists often hated when artists from their camp crossed over into mainstream or diluted the purity of their genre. The same goes for country, bluegrass, classical, and so on. The smaller pools are great for greenhousing artists as they develop, helping them find their voice and their footing, and for them to develop some kind of a following. But most performers want to reach a wide audience, and when that opportunity comes, it usually involves a combination of learning what that larger audience wants, and then considering what kind of adjustment you as the artist are willing to make to your work in order to expand your reach. Some artists will do anything it takes to become as popular as possible, they lose all sense of themselves and their artistic integrity in the process. Others cling so tenaciously to their perception of purity that they stay in their narrow niche forever. Most find their balance somewhere in between and leave it to people like me to pontificate whether or not they have sold out. But in the case of specifically Christian or gospel music, there's an added layer of complication at work. In addition to musical styles, there's the question of lyric and intent. When Mark Hurd was coming up as a young artist in the 70s, it would have been completely natural for him to explore his faith and all of the questions and concerns it raised through his music. As a kid, his records were especially meaningful to me, because even though they came specifically from the Christian music world, they pointed to something much bigger. They deserved to be heard and appreciated by fans of Jackson Brown and Elvis Costello, but the limitations of the genre assured they never would be. I remember first hearing his song Stuck in the Middle and adopting it as a sort of theme song when I was in junior high school. I'm too sacred for the sinners, he sang, and the saints wish I would leave. Heard fell in with a tribe of like-minded, forward-thinking artists like Pat Terry, Sam Phillips, Derry Daugherty, and Steve Hindelong, T-Bone Burnett, and Tony O'Kay, and others. But ultimately, he came to the realization that the Christian music niche was not designed for artists who could see past the imaginary fences. He was casting his pearls at that point and needed to get out. Drybone's Dance was his first real shot, and it was amazing. And while it may not have been a commercial success, it certainly was a creative success. The songs traveled and continue to impact people three decades later. And though Hurd's journey ended way too soon when he died of heart failure at just 40 years old in 1992, he died pointing many of us to a much bigger, greener pasture. Kevin has a very different story, but with some similar shades. He went from listening to 80s new wave and alternative rock and developing his voice singing along to Freddie Mercury and Bowie to selling millions of albums in a Christian pop rap group. It sounds crazy, but I don't know a single creative, ambitious college student who wouldn't have taken that shot. Performers want to perform, and the crowds loved it. 
It makes perfect sense that Kevin would walk through those open doors, have some fun, enjoy making music with his friends, and see where it went. On a deeper level, though, this all reminds me of the difference between the freedom that Jesus spoke about and the invisible chains and imaginary fences that religion, tradition, politics, and habits can have over us if we're not careful. In John 10, after healing a man who had been born blind, Jesus got in trouble with religious leaders who grilled the healed man and accused Jesus of being wicked for working on the Sabbath. In John 8, when the religious leaders brought a woman caught in the act of adultery before him, believing they could trap Jesus in an impossible answer, he simultaneously convicted the accusers of their own sinfulness by inviting whomever was without sin to throw the first stone, and then absolved the woman of her sin. Her chains were gone. The boundaries were not there. He asked if anyone was left to accuse her. She had to admit that no, they had all left. Then go, Jesus said, and sin no more. Over and over, throughout these stories, we see this same pattern. There is a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. There is another way that seems to be death, but in fact it leads to life. In John 6, after feeding 5,000 people and walking on water, Jesus says some really difficult stuff about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's provocative, scandalous stuff designed to elicit a response. And boy, does it. Even many of his disciples turned away, saying he had gone too far. The only ones left were his original 12. He asked if they were going to leave too, and Peter said, where else can we go? No one else has the words of life. Even though the religious folks were furious on one side, and the crowds seemed more interested in filling their bellies, they would stick with this word-made flesh and see where he took them. Their small ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to look like were being exposed. Their imaginations were expanding. This little niche was about to go worldwide, and the haters would be there any second with their hammers and their nails. Fear, loneliness, a need for significance, or just to be seen, a longing for justice, or revenge, or even a desire to be a good person, to be thought of and recognized as strong, talented, and decent. Any of these things can become chains, traps, or snares. And there's nothing as painful as realizing that the bars that hold me back were forged by me, and that the door has been open all along. Art has the power to infect our imagination with glimpses of beauty by which the ugliness of this world can truly be judged. As we learn to allow a good, true song to work on us, to challenge us, and to break us down, we open ourselves to the better future waiting for us. Music, for me anyway, has helped me come to understand aspects of myself and my fellow travelers so that I can have more grace when that is what's called for and the courage to pack up and leave when that is what's called for. When we learn to listen well, we never know what we might end up hearing. So, as we continue on this journey together, I hope that this idea of listening to better music and listening to music better can include tuning our ears to hear the sound of the key turning in whatever lock might be holding us in our imaginary cages. Whether that be success we don't think we can live without, or failure we don't think we can live down, let's listen for the melody that is calling us to rise from the ruins. Okay, I'm climbing down from my soapbox now.
that's going to do it for this episode. I know it was another long one. Hope you don't mind. We didn't charge you any extra, so at least there's that. There was a ton of music in this episode. You can find the complete list of tracks on the show notes page, along with links to the various things that we talked about. I do want to thank Chris Taylor for continuing to provide some great instrumental tracks. And of course, I couldn't get any of this done without my co-producer, confidant engineer, Bruce A. Brown, about 600 miles to my right, making it all sound so good. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions, and the program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to have a blast discovering whatever your new territory is and challenging us all to keep our ears tuned for the ring of truth in every song we hear. There are a lot of lies being sung out there, but beneath and above them all is a song that remains true. When we sing that song, the dry bones can dance indeed. Joy with someone you have found. You really live, you will take it with you if you pass the plate.